You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. Good morning. Glad to see your shiny, happy faces after uh, being off last week because of... uh, uh, sickness and ill health. Glad we're all feeling better. When we look back at the end of chapter 2 of John's Gospel, we, we read this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then we discovered in the very next verse, at the beginning of chapter 3, John introduces us to a man. A man, as we all remember, was Nicodemus. As we saw, Nicodemus had a lot of things going for him. But the one thing that he lacked was the ability to comprehend the things of the Spirit. How do we know this? Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about spiritual things. He was talking about the rebirth and how to enter the kingdom. And as we know, Nicodemus, for his part, had no earthly idea of what Jesus was talking about. He was hearing Jesus through earthly ears rather than spiritual ears. It didn't matter that Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. It didn't matter that Nicodemus was one of those super smart guys who likely knew his Bible better than anyone else in all of Jerusalem. He didn't understand what Jesus was talking about because Nicodemus had no ability to comprehend the spiritual because he was not born again. He was not born from above. Jesus is going to expand on this in chapter 6, where he tells the people, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And we see examples of this time and again in the scriptures. For instance, we have Jesus performing miracles all over the place. Raising people from the dead. Healed people of their leprosy. And and every other sort of malady imaginable. Yet, what's amazing is that the people still didn't believe. Sure, some marveled. Some were amazed. Some believed, but not anywhere close to the majority. Why? Because the miracles were to be understood in a context of the Messiah and of the coming kingdom. This was a spiritual truth that most couldn't wrap their heads around because of their sin. They were still dead in their trespasses. So John does a really interesting thing here through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. 
as he was carried along by the Spirit, as the Scriptures tell us. We go from one example of man, (coughs) and Jesus knowing a man, or what is in a man, to chapter 4, where John tells us about another man. Except this time, it's not a man, it's a woman. And not just any woman, but one that is basically the polar opposite of Nicodemus. John takes us from one extreme to the other, and yet illustrates for us perfectly the condition by which we must be saved. So, with that, the, uh, the title of today's sermon is From One Extreme to the Other. And if you turn with me to John chapter 4, we're going to cover verses 1 through 15. And it reads, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can still get together as as your church and that uh, we can study your word. We can preach your word. We can sing your praises. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this gathering here today. Lord God, I... Pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and soften our hearts that we may apply that which you would have us learn today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we have, in verses 1 to 6, we have the setting of the scene. Before we meet the Samaritan woman at the well, John sets the scene for us a little bit, and there are a number of things that we should probably take note of. The first being the comparison of the popularity of the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist. 
The Apostle John tells us in the first place that Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So, here we have Jesus hearing through the grapevine that the Pharisees have heard. You're still following along? Why in the world would this catch the attention of Jesus? Why would Jesus care that the Pharisees have heard that Jesus' ministry is taking off faster than John's? We must remember that the Pharisees had some serious concerns about John's ministry. See, he was baptizing, calling for repentance of who? The Jewish nation of all people. The Pharisees and scribes understood that the Jews were the clean ones. They didn't have any need for ritual cleansing via baptism, but only proselytes converting to Judaism. It's only the, it's only the dirty proselytes that need to be baptized. If you remember, they were quite taken aback at the whole scene. They were inquiring of John, just what do you think you're doing? Then we have Jesus come along and he too is gathering disciples and baptizing. John, of course, rejoiced in the fact that Jesus' ministry was overtaking his own. That was the whole point and John knew it. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what John made public. But we're at the point now where both John and his disciples have noticed that Jesus' ministry was overtaking theirs in size and importance. What was the point of John's ministry? Remember, what, what, what did he say? He said, make straight the way of the Lord. And then he also said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His ministry was singular, and it was pointing to Christ. And John was so successful that Jesus' ministry took off, which moved the target of the wrath of the Pharisees from John to Jesus. And when Jesus realized that the Pharisees knew how large this new ministry was getting, Jesus decided that Maybe now is a good time to move along back to Galilee. Verse 4 is an interesting one. It says, And he had to pass through Samaria. In order to understand the importance of the encounter with the Samaritan woman, we need to know a little bit about the historical context of Samaria. After the kingdom of Israel split shortly after the death of King Solomon into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom created for itself a new capital, and they called this new capital Samaria. Part of the history of the split is that the northern kingdom no longer made pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the feast days or for temple worship but instead set up their own worship centers and practices at Mount Gerizim. To make matters worse, they rejected the entirety of the Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses. They rejected everything else. And if that wasn't enough to make them a stench in the noses of the southern kingdom, after Samaria was defeated in the battle by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., many of the Israelites were taken to Assyria, never to return. This was common practice. 
as was common practice in the ancient days, a defeated kingdom would be exiled to the conqueror's land and the conquering army would in turn send settlers into the lands of the defeated. Those settlers brought with them their pagan ways and what happened was they inevitably syncretized their culture and worship with those of the locals. See, not all of of, uh, the northern kingdom was packed off. Only the very most important people were then packed off to Assyria. The vast majority of the common people were left to fend for themselves. What happened, of course, is they intermarried and they became known as half-breeds. That's their words. I know that's a little inappropriate to say today, but that's essentially how they were labeled, uh, is the Samaritans were half-breeds. You must remember it was illegal to intermarry with people outside of the Jewish faith because of the likelihood of being led astray into idolatry. You have to look no further than King Solomon for that. By the time of the Romans and Jesus, the area became became known as Samaria, and the Jews didn't want anything really to do with them if they could at all help it. In fact, if if Jews needed to go north into Galilee for any reason, you have to remember that even Galilee was kind of the nether regions of of Israel. Uh, Those in the southern kingdom around Jerusalem uh, weren't too keen on even going to Galilee, but part of the issue is that they had to go through Samaria to get there. And it, was, it wasn't common practice, but it was, it was known that, that there were some that were so worried about going, they didn't even want to step into Samaria to dirty themselves. So what they would do is they would go all the way to the east, cross the Jordan into, into uh, uh, pagan land, go north, and then come back over once they've passed Samaria. They were so worried about it. It was definitely a roundabout way of getting to Galilee, but of course it was better than to dirty oneself by walking through Samaria. So how is it that John says he had to pass through Samaria? He didn't have to, but it's maybe a way of saying, and Jesus had a divine appointment. After all, we know everything happens for a reason. And when we look at this account, encounter, we, uh, when we look at the situation, and when we compare this encounter to the meeting with Nicodemus, it's easy to think, at least I think, to understand this text to mean he had to go through Samaria because he had another person in whom he had a divine appointment. That's why he had to go through. John tells us that Jesus stopped at Jacob's well, which is a reference to Genesis 48.22. That well, to this point in Scripture, had been active for almost 2,000 years. Could you imagine? And it was actually considered a sacred site. What's amazing is this well is still active today and in use to this very day, 4,000 years later. Verse 6 has a couple of interesting points we should look at briefly. The first point is that John emphasizes that Jesus was weary. We must remember that Jesus was God in the flesh and that being in the flesh meant that Jesus was like you and I. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He experienced everything that you and I experience except the act of sinning. 
It is all too common for Christians to over or underemphasize the humanity of Jesus. So Jesus had been walking all morning in the heat of the day and came upon Jacob's well. And in the, in the, in the, John tells us it was the sixth hour. That's noon. So why did Jesus stop there? And you might think, well, he, was, he stopped there obviously to get a drink. Well, what's the problem? Well, first off, he sends his 12 disciples into the local town to buy something for lunch. So there he is, all alone, sitting at the well. What's he waiting for? Why didn't he reach down and get himself a drink? Well, he didn't do that because the water is over 100 feet down. He can't get at it, and he has no bucket or rope to get it. The second problem? No one comes in the heat of the day to get water. That's a very important fact here. At noon, at Jacob's well, no one's coming to help him. Right? Um, that's something that the women folk did at the start of the day or at the end of the day when the sun wasn't so blistering hot. How do we know that Jesus had a divine appointment? Because a woman coming all the way out to Jacob's well in the heat of the day isn't done unless one expects her to be there. Finally, if you've ever seen any pictures of Jacob's well, you can see that there's no shade. So we know Jesus was weary, but there he is sitting at the well out in the open. There's no shade. There's nothing there. It's out in the open. However, not far from the well is a shadier area that Jesus could have sat at in order to avoid the sun's rays and the sweltering heat as he was waiting for his disciples to return. But he didn't do that. Instead, he sits at the well, out in the open, where his meeting with the Samaritan woman would take place. So there you have the setting. Now to the meeting. A woman from Samaria came to draw water in verse 7, the first half of verse 7. Right on time, here comes a woman from Samaria with her bucket to draw water. As I stated, this is highly unusual. Not only is she coming in the middle of the day, but she's also coming alone. Women were known to get water in groups. And they would, as I said, they would either do it in the morning or in the evening but they wouldn't make the trek out at noon. Here we have a woman all by herself in the middle of the day making a trek out of Sychar to get water. Um, this is also not a, what we'd call an in, insignificant walk. It's a, it's a little ways from Sychar to the well. How shocked she must have been to see anyone sitting at the well, especially at that time of day. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He says to her, give me a drink. Of course, the Samaritan woman immediately complies. Oh, yes, sir. Right away, sir. My pleasure, sir. Oh, that's not what she did at all, was it? Instead, she essentially says, what is wrong with you? Did you bump your head or something? Are you lost? Are you new? Don't you know who you're talking to? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. How is it possible that you're asking me 
for water. She would have been incredulous. And just in case we miss the point, John makes it abundantly clear for us when he writes, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, that doesn't mean that Jews and Samaritans won't do business with with one another. Uh, We know that because if that were the case, uh, Jesus wouldn't have sent his disciples into Sychar to buy lunch. What does it mean then? Samaritans were considered unclean by the Jews. Therefore, they would not break bread with them, especially on their home turf of Samaria. How bad was this attitude? I found this very, very interesting. Let me read you a bit. This is codified Jewish law from Mishnah Nida chapter 4 and verse 1. Okay? It states to the effect that, here's the quote, All daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. Nice, eh? Are you getting to see maybe why this Samaritan woman's reaction was what it was? To say Jesus asking her for water is inappropriate or maybe a little outside the norm is a serious understatement. This sort of thing just didn't happen. And we must keep in mind Samaritans weren't innocent in this either. They disliked Jews as much as Jews disliked them. Uh, She would have recognized the clothing that Jesus was wearing as Jewish, right? There's a chance that she actually passed the disciples on their way into town. If she did, do you think that the disciples would have been gentlemen and got off the path for her to pass by? Kind of how we would think today, being gentlemen, let the lady go first, right? Not a chance, All this woman wanted to do was get to the well by herself so as to not run into anyone. And here she probably ran into 12 Jews on the way who forced her off the path. They would have completely ignored her at best. At worst, they probably scowled at her as they passed her by. Then she gets to the well and there's another one. She dismisses him as a Jew. And funny enough, Jews will dismiss Jesus as a Samaritan. In John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, are you, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's quite the accusation. All things considered. So Jesus continues the conversation. I picture him sort of nonplussed by her reaction. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This statement is equivalent to Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus here is speaking of spiritual things. And we know by her reaction that she has absolutely no idea of what he's talking about. Much like Nicodemus didn't have a clue. She has no idea who she's talking to or what he's offering. 
I do believe that just like Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where he points out to Nicodemus that you are the teacher of Israel and you don't know this. Remember that line? Jesus' Jesus' reference to the gift of God here points to the Torah. This was something that that, uh, they considered the, the, the five books of the Torah as being the supreme gift of God. And the woman, being a Samaritan, um, would have recognized the reference. And she should have known what was in the first five books. Jesus is essentially saying here, if you really knew your Bible and who it was that is speaking with you, your answer would have been a little different. And how should she have understood the reference to living water? Here, Jesus is referencing the Old Testament parts of the Bible that the Samaritans have summarily rejected. We can read from Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 3. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have uh, dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have rejected God and His Word and have instead relied upon their own strength and wisdom, of which both fail. Further, we have reference to water that cleanses in Isaiah and Ezekiel. We have living water that flows out of Jerusalem in Zechariah. God is the living water, and He was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. He is standing at the well, offering living water to the Samaritan woman. And she in turn says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Her reaction is both confused and a tad condescending, which in the end makes her statement quite ironic. She still has absolutely no idea of what this living water is, and she mocks Jesus a little here by claiming, you don't even have any way of getting this water from the well. Where are you going to get this living water you keep talking about? Besides, Jacob the beloved patriarch of Israel, had to dig this well. It required a lot of energy and a lot of hard work. A hundred feet down, that's a lot of work for that water. But the well has been producing for thousands of years. Yet you think you're better than Jacob. You and your living water, what are you talking about? The form of her question indicates that the answer to her own question is no. Jesus is not better than Jacob. Although we, the reader, know both things that she did not know. Jesus is not talking about ordinary water, is he? But spiritual life offered in him. And yes, Jesus is better than Jacob. Jesus, in his infinite patience, tells the woman, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We're not talking about natural water here, lady. We're talking about the Spirit, the Spirit that makes alive, the Spirit that causes a thirst for God. (coughs) Pardon me. There are numerous Old Testament promises in this regard. They're all over the place. I'll give you just a few. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 49, 10. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Isaiah 44 and verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Final one. But there are many, many, many more. Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Jesus makes it plain that he is not talking about water from a well. But the Samaritan woman still cannot understand what Jesus is talking about. And her reply to this is rather pitiful at this point, where she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't want to come back to the well here anymore. Where's this living water? Coming out to Jacob's well every day is a pain, especially when no one or especially when one has to do it in the middle of the day in order to avoid the judgmental eyes of others. Living waters, eh? Well, sounds good to her. Now, where does she get this water? Jesus is going to help her understand a little better, but Kevin is going to take us through that next week. In the meantime, and in conclusion for today... John takes us on a bit of a roller coaster ride. Who is the gospel for? Who needs it? John starts us off with Nicodemus. He's a male, he's a Jew, he's a scholar, he's a political leader, he's wealthy, and he's moral and upright. What did John make obvious to us in the story of Nicodemus? That Nicodemus was missing just one thing in order to be saved. All those things he had going for him, he was still missing one thing. Faith in Jesus. Then he takes us to the other extreme. Here in chapter 4, we have a nameless person. We know who Nicodemus is. We have no idea the name of the Samaritan woman. So we have this nameless person, a nobody if you will. And not just any nobody, 
but a woman. Women in ancient times were not valued members of society as they are today. On top of that, she was a Samaritan, not a Jew. This means that she fell outside of orthodoxy. She wasn't a believer. She had the wrong religion. She was also uneducated, unlike Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel. She was a person of no political importance. No one cared what she thought or needed. She was poor. She had no money, no standing. And to top the whole thing off, she was immoral, as we're going to find out next week. Nicodemus was very moral. She, very immoral. Everything that Nicodemus was, she was not. Everything that Nicodemus had going for him in the game of life, she did not have it. What we have here are two extremes when it comes to a worldly understanding of the game of life. In the game of who has God blessed more? Maybe the game of who is closer to heaven? This man, Nicodemus, who has everything? Or this woman who has nothing? The answer? All she needs to get to heaven is faith in Jesus. Just like Nicodemus. Now this is great news for the sinner. These two examples show us that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is a notion by many out there today that all you need to do to go to heaven is to be a good person. We've all heard that, right? If you've watched, if you've watched the videos of, uh, of what's his name, the, the, the guy that wanders around the beaches of uh, Los Angeles and asks people if they're good. They all think they're good. They're all going to go to heaven. The problem, of course, is that you can never do enough or know enough to earn your way into heaven. Everyone falls short, even so-called good people. There are none high enough in our society who do not need Jesus. The Dalai Lama needs Jesus. The Pope needs Jesus. John MacArthur, the Protestant Pope, needs Jesus. Elon Musk needs Jesus. And yes, even our beloved Justin Trudeau needs Jesus. Without Jesus, these people in high places have nothing. And in the end, they will stand before God and be found wanting. Now, for the other side of the coin, we have people that have lived maybe what we would call wretched lives, who have made a hash of things, who have come to the end of their rope and have lost all hope because they believe themselves to be too wretched, too unworthy, too stained to ever be considered worthy of salvation. There is just one problem with this line of thinking. It's not that they're wrong with regards to their unworthiness, for we are all unworthy, but they are wrong in their understanding of just how great a Savior we serve. It's not that we're too stained. It's that we have a Savior who saves to the uttermost, who can wash us white as the driven snow, the Scripture tells us. 
Not because of how great we are or how easy that sin comes off, but because of how great He is. Is your God too small to save you? Jesus isn't. We have a God who is so powerful to save that even the likes of Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan could be saved if they repented before death. Not because they were somehow worthy, obviously not, but because of just how worthy Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners, is. The point John is making is that salvation is for everyone, both the Jew and the Greek, the Orthodox and the unbeliever, that there is none who is beneath salvation and none above salvation apart from Christ. Go this week, knowing you, a wretched sinner, yes, even you, wretched sinner, you were saved by grace, and that God has called you to be part of His salvation plan, to share the gospel with others, so that others may experience the grace and mercy of God, same as we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. You've shown us that none are too high and none are too low, but all require the saving grace of Jesus Christ and that faith in him is the only way to salvation. We thank you for salvation of those that are here today. We ask, Lord, that you would help us be courageous and brave in these times that we would share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your sheep will hear your voice and that they would follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.